Hi, I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's foreign affairs podcast. And today I'm joined by Stephen Miles, the executive director of Win Without War, and Kate Kaiser, the policy director of Win Without War. Win Without War is a grassroots organization that works to demilitarize U.S. foreign policy. And it's also been a pretty clear voice in making the connection between what it views and and, and I also view as missteps in American foreign policy and uh, some of the domestic crises that we're facing at home in the United States today. Uh, Stephen and Kate, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. So we're recording the day before inauguration, but this episode is going to air after inauguration. So we're going to try and keep our focus on the the, the bigger trends and not on the uh, uh, terrible turning points that might unfold in between our recording and our release day. Uh, I wanted to start by asking the two of you about uh, something that you've you've been very uh, uh, vocal and I think clear on, uh, which is ways that you see uh, America's militaristic foreign policy driving authoritarianism uh, here at home. Um, whichever one of you wants to start, um, can you actually help help draw that line that you see at the sort of causal link between militarism abroad and authoritarianism at home? Yeah, sure. So I'm happy to happy to start there. And I think the reality is is that the, we we have to start to break down this this notion that there isn't abroad, there is a home, that there there's this kind of great dividing wall um, when we get to the when we get to our borders that that somehow changes how our policies interact. Because the reality is, what happens what we do at home is interconnected with what happens abroad. What happens abroad is interconnected with what we do at home. And I think we uh, we understand that fundamentally. Those of us who work in progressive foreign policy, we tend to talk a lot about. Um, the reality that kind of our values inform how we think about foreign policy, the same values that inform how we think about domestic policy, right? Our, our basic sense of, of of equality and justice and these kinds of underlying values, they apply abroad as well as at home. We get that. But obviously, the reverse is true as well, right? The same values that, that we see sent abroad uh, are a reflection back on values that exist here at home. And so when you see things like the militarism that we've seen in particular over the last 20 years of the so-called war on terror, when you see the kind of underlying things like white supremacy that are part and parcel of those policies, they're really a reflection on us back at home as well. And it's inevitable that those policies are going to be interconnected and eventually be felt back here at the same time that we see them abroad. I think Stephen, you know, covered it really well. The only other point to add is that I think, you know, for the last 20 years at least, if not much longer, the U.S., the way it's conducted itself abroad, has not necessarily been in compliance with international law and the other international norms that it says it wants to uphold and hold other countries accountable to. And it's this form of American exceptionalism where the idea that the rules don't apply to us because we're Americans, I think is very, very much a homegrown phenomena that then has been weaponized by demagogues, um, particularly Trump over the last four years to show, to basically reinforce the idea that certain parts of people in the United States are the victims um, of these systems. And so they have this right to break the rules because they don't apply to them. Well, so this this brings up a, a a question which I've explored a lot as well, and I have 
some ideas about, but but I don't think there's an obvious answer. So forever, uh, imperial countries, big big economies, big countries, empires uh, have behaved abusively in their colonies, in their foreign wars, in their proxy wars, uh, and done things uh, essentially beyond their borders or in secret that they would never do in public or at home to their to their own citizens or their own fully vested citizens. Uh, so it's a it's a fair question that. Uh, I've been asked as well, which is, you know, what's what's different now? I mean, you know, America did bad things and during the you know the Spanish American War in 1898, um, and you know you can go further back and further ahead. So what changed uh, with the War on Terror that made uh, the, the that 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 really decisively changed our conduct across the board? Um, and and the things I'm thinking about, but you, but you can broaden this conversation out. But I think about the the overtness of, of certain forms of racism, the overtness of certain forms of uh, uh, torture and and violence by security services, um, the overt abandonment of of the values of human rights. So those are the three things that leap to my mind as as having changed. Uh, after 9/11, but but give give me your view on uh, how the sort of long history of of, of hypocrisy or double dealing uh, has manifested in a really decisively different way uh, during the the war on terror era. Well, I think that two of the key differences in this era is one the rise of social media um, and the sense that it gives individuals not only that there are there is a community for the ideas that they hold, right? Um, and those ideas are ultimately the end product of a fear politic that is being used, that has been used, particularly since 9-11. I think the other is a series of events related to globalization that have reinforced this idea of victimhood um, in parts of white America. Um, and the we can't forget that the economic crash in 2008, um, you know, played a deleterious role, particularly in rural America, um, but also amongst those who view themselves as having economic security, who view themselves more as white collar workers. But then when you cannot get work, um, there is an acute alienation that happens. And when you have um, a personality then who is able to speak to those grievances in a way that others were not um, in uncloaked language, I think, um, that authenticity that Trump has used is really key to his ability to mobilize people. Um, and it's all of this plus the disenchantment with our democratic institutions and the uh, deadlock in Congress over the last two decades, um, I think really just reinforced um, and brought these systems of oppression to the fore in a way that they haven't been. Well, and I think I think drone strikes is a is a really interesting case to think about this around because uh, you know the the first uh, sorry the second bush administration after 911 uh normalized a sort of form of remote remote killing um and and yet it was obama uh who was ostensibly trying to reassert uh, a, a more modest or, or less warlike approach to policy who really accelerated uh, drone killings, including against American citizens. Um, and then, of course, you know, with with Trump, that's uh, not just normalized, but becomes part and parcel of a of a much more violent uh, or overtly violent and, and unhuman uh, a, a approach to, to 
killing. Uh, but I find that I find this to be a, uh, not a hard, a hard version of this, but a sort of revealing way of asking the question because, uh, you know, we saw increasingly worse behavior, even under very different flavors of, of administration, which I think speaks to, uh, one of your central concerns, which is the sort of s- systematic, uh, causes of militarized foreign policy that really transcend the personalities of, of leadership. So if, if, if the same kind of bad practice can thrive under an Obama presidency and a Trump presidency, then we can safely say that whatever's happening here is it runs deeper and and is a bigger problem than who's in the, in the white house. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's right. And before, before I get into that part, I want to just circle back on what, on the, the point we were just making before this, Danasi, about, you know, you raised a great hypothetical about kind of, you know, the turn of the 20th century. And, and I, I do think, you know, two things about that. One, I think we need to not have some super rose colored glasses about the realities of the violence that came back home during that era as well. You know, obviously the, the, the Jim Crow uh, and Jim Crow violence throughout throughout much of the country, but also just brutal violent crackdowns uh, on the left through that period, kind of anti-union violence, anti-leftist violence. There, there was a tremendous, you know, I, this is my, the historian and me coming out by trade. I think sometimes we forget about some of the violence, some of the anti-democratic forces that that existed in our own history. So, so that's that's part one. Is is we have seen this before. But part two is there is something different about this moment, and you see that globally, right? This is not a uniquely American phenomenon. This is not something specific to the United States, and it gets to the the the, the factors that Kate was talking about. You know, it's not a coincidence that you see the rise of Donald Trump at the same time you see the rise of Bolsonaro in Brazil, Modi in India, uh, other demagogues and kind of autocrats all around the world, Duterte in the Philippines. You can go on and on. There's there's inter there's interconnecting phenomenon. There's frankly interconnecting movements between them. There's a reason you see Steve Bannon popping up in lots of these places with these with these guys campaigning for them, um, and that's because some of the factors that are allowing this grievance to be stoked, allowing this coordination of a of an anti-democratic, a, a fascist, and you know, alt-right, call it what you will, um, forces to really gain power and, and play on that grievance of this moment. They're real and they're pervasive kind of uh, in this moment in time. And and some and, and it's not it's not uniquely American. And as you just said, it also kind of transcends party, it transcends nationality, it transcends ideology. There's there's real things happening there kind of that get to the core of 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 what is causing this. Um, obviously, the question as always is kind of what do we do about this? You're right that there wasn't kind of a, a you know, there were, there was a lot of things that started during the Bush era. Um, there, the, there's, there was a, the Obama area that in between that and the Trump era, it's not like everything went away. Then we had these same kind of, we had, you know, different challenges, um, for sure. And I don't, you know, there's, uh, it, it would be wrong to say there was nothing different between the Obama era and the Trump era. I mean, that's, that's preposterous. There's a tremendous amount that's different, but the anti-democratic nature of our foreign policy, some of the inhumanity of the core ideology of what we saw on the, on the war on terror, that was pervasive. And with that comes a, comes a dehumanization of the other, right? 
the fundamental belief that we should, quote unquote, fight them over there so that we don't fight them over here. The immorality in that logic in that in that is fundamental, right? It is that we can sit by and be silent in the face of hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians in other countries dying if, quote unquote, it makes us safer. That basic immorality, that basic willingness to turn a blind eye to human suffering, to, to deny human dignity to others in defense of our own protection, that's what you saw last week at the Capitol, right? That's what you see in the whipped up base of Donald Trump supporters who are saying they must protect their country and it doesn't matter what the collateral damage is. You see the roots of that in the, in the war on terror. And I think that's part of why uh, this moment is so different than those other moments. We'll be right back after a quick break. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani, and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation, and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's foreign affairs podcast. I'm talking to Stephen Miles and Kate Kaiser from Win Without War. Just before the break, uh, Stephen, you referred to the way that uh, America's foreign policy, immorality, and and uh, dehumanization came uh, came home, so to speak, or, or manifested in the January 6th uh, coup attempt uh, on the Capitol. I want I want you two to talk a little bit more about that because I, I do think um, this is something that gets asserted a lot um, and and can be uh, better justified and better explained with with specifics. So tell us a little bit how, in your analysis, what happened on January 6th was caused by and connected, not just sort of in a loose moral sense, but in a literal you know, we did these things and those things led to these other things. Uh, how that how that attempted coup connected to uh, our forever wars or to our anti-democratic uh, and hyper-militarized foreign policy. Yeah, sure. Maybe maybe I can start. I, I think, happy to give some specifics, but I, I do think the reason you see people retreat to kind of the bigger picture, the broader strokes is because it is systemic. It's multi-causal. It's not simply, you know, we did X and then Y happened, right? It's it's the confluence of all these factors, the kind of erosion of our civil liberties, the erosion of our of our democratic institutions and norms. That in total is what happens, right? It's not just a singular thing. But I think you do see some through lines, right? The fundamental theoretical architecture of the war on terror is one of othering, right? It is us versus them. It is we need to be safe and our safety is born out of uh, out of violence against them, right? Against terrorizing them. That that drive, that kind of keeping people in a constant state of us versus them, um, whether that uh, is is um, yes, we deserve civil liberties, but not those people down at Guantanamo, right? Yes, of course we deserve uh, we deserve freedoms and we deserve the right to vote and we deserve all these things, but not other people. They 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 need to they need to be to ruled until we can be sure they're going to be safe. You see this time and time again through the logic 
of the war on terror. Um, you know, I, I often imagine like, what what would we be like? What would our what would it, you know? I, I grew up near Philadelphia. What if if all day over Philadelphia there were drones flying, and every couple of weeks one of those drones dropped a Hellfire missile on some part of Philadelphia and it exploded? Right? Like, what would that do to our collective psychology? We don't have conversations about what that does to others' collective psychology, what that does to places like Yemen, to Pakistan, to Somalia, to other places where that is the reality. Because we've so very much otherized that it's not even it's not even in our comprehension to imagine what that reality is. Eventually, that othering, eventually that notion that our freedom, our liberty is totally okay to be bought with terror on others, with eroding democratic institutions, with violence. Eventually, that comes home, right? Eventually, if you can tell yourself of that about other people, and then you start to hear over and over on Fox News for 20 years, let alone the vast ecosystem of the alt-right and, and, and further into the right wing, you hear that Democrats, that liberals, they are terrorists, they are others, they are, they are violent, they are trying to, you hear the exact same language that was used throughout the early part of the century to describe terrorism um, from, from, uh, from Al-Qaeda and others. It, you're going to trigger those same synapses. You're going to get people to a place where they can justify almost anything in the name of their own quote unquote freedom. I think also uh, uh, something I read recently by Jonathan Katz has really stood out to me just in kind of the aftermath of the coup attempt is that fascism is imperialism come home, essentially, right? That the U.S. experiment with imperialism is nothing new, um, but it's actively being challenged. We are living in a declining empire. Um, but as part of building that empire, uh, we have normalized brutality as a means to pursue power. And I think this is where the linkages has also become really clear in that the defining doctrine or ideology that has been driving our foreign policy at least for the last 20 years is that is that of U.S. hegemony or the pursuit of U.S. power and military dominance around the world. And that is the only, the idea is that that is the only means that we can secure ourselves, secure um, the United States from invaders, et cetera. Um, and obviously, power and dominance were the goals of that mob. You had some of them dressed up as Vikings who were conquerors at the end of the day. And so I think not only is this like inherent to this country's DNA, um, but you also have it fetishized throughout our culture, whether that's in TV and movies or elsewhere, that the good guys are the ones who are invading with guns and quote unquote civilizing black and brown people around. Right? We see this time again, um, despite the racial justice reckonings that have gone on this summer. And I think until we understand how those just uh, popular narratives directly feed into this mentality of victimhood and dehumanization that is being driven at the federal level, we won't fully reckon with how we got to where we got to on January 6th. And I think that some of these conditions you describe are, are almost, you know, bed, bedrock conditions of a, you know, of like a state that conceives of, of itself as a world power. Uh, and and what's some of the things that are new? I mean, you you mentioned social media. Uh, one of the, one of the things that that has developed differently over the last twenty years is uh, the way we built a Praetorian class of men and women 
who fought these American wars abroad and under different conditions than in the past. I mean, even uh, shady military interventions that were part of a conscript army during the Cold War actually play out differently politically than these wars that are that are fought with really unlimited rules of engagement uh, and by a, a group of people who are trained to think of themselves as different uh, and, and and more valuable and and possessing more rights than the rest of Americans. Uh, and that and and those are, I mean interestingly, those are among the people who led the most dangerous elements of the coup attempt. Uh, and they were also uh, among the ranks of people who resisted them uh, uh, more resolutely than others, including, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to see that in the Pentagon, uh, you know, we have some of the sort of more dangerous uh, elements of runaway militaristic foreign policy, but we also had one of the few institutional checks uh, in, in the weeks leading up to the coup, when we had the, those statements uh, about you know respecting the constitutional order, uh, which didn't come from any other uh, part part of of of, of the government, uh, and and I don't see salvation coming to us from the military, but what I do see in all this is is evidence of how uh, how central the military's role has become in all uh, our foreign policy making, and where it it becomes like the the sole guardian uh, of, of you know not just our national idea but of of our institutional power uh, and that and that is with without a change in where that power lies the money the staff to do things I think we're going to be again and again hostage uh, you know to to military approaches and military thinking. Well, Vanessa, now you're singing my song. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 look, I, I think. I think if, if there's a theme to today, it's it's that these problems are systemic. That that what's happening is a result of of factors that are in place. It is not all just because of Donald Trump. And I think you're absolutely right that if we want to see something change, we need to understand that we have to change those systems. We have to change those factors. Now, some of those things are really big and hard, right? Like we've talked about the role white supremacy is playing in all this and the role that we're going to have to have in tackling that in ourselves and in our institutions and in our country. You know, we had massive uh, uprisings this summer over racial, uh, about racial justice, uh, all about that question. That's going to be big. It's going to be hard. It's going to take all of us. But other parts of this, like the one you just talked about, the role of the, United, the U.S. military, the role of the Pentagon, the militarization of our entire foreign policy, they're actually relatively simple. We liken this town to, to kind of gussy them up and make it seem like it's really complicated. But guess what? If you spend almost all your money when it comes to foreign policy on the military and you have mostly members of the military, hundreds of thousands of civilians at the Pentagon, hundreds of thousands of contractors who work with those uh, folks in uniform and those civilians at the Pentagon, guess what? You're going to have a militarized foreign policy, right? If that's the only tool in your toolkit that you've invested in, that's all you're going to have. You know, it's cliche at this point to say if only you have as a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But all we have is a hammer, right? As long as I've been working on Afghanistan, which is now over a decade, people have said there are no military solutions to the problems we face in Afghanistan. We know because of the Afghan paper, Afghanistan papers that the leaders of the military said there are no military solutions to the challenges we face in Afghanistan. Yet the only solutions we continue to pursue really and meaningfully and truly are military solutions. The only things we continue to pursue are arming, tripping, or equipping, training, our forces, other forces, proxy forces. Um, that's what we continue to do because that's the only tool that we have. 
it's really easy to change that. You just have to change that, right? We just have to spend the money we have differently. We have to make different choices with our investments. I'm not naive to say that's not complicated. It doesn't take political capital. But in the grand scheme of things, it's a relatively simple fix. What's lacking is the political will to do it. We'll be right back. What exactly would a progressive foreign policy look like in the Middle East? What can governments do differently and better? Critiques are easy. Providing realistic policy proposals is harder. I'm Michael Wahid Hanna, and with my colleagues and collaborators here at the Century Foundation, we're trying to answer the hard policy questions with specific, concrete proposals. You can see our ideas and join the conversation on our website, tcf.org. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's foreign affairs podcast. And I'm talking with Stephen Miles and Kate Kaiser from Win Without War. Let's uh, build on the, the last point you made right before the break, Stephen. Uh, what what can we do about it? What are the what are the steps uh, that we can take in, in, in real time, like in the first year of a Biden administration, uh, to start that process of demilitarization or of democratizing uh, foreign policy making? Well, I think first and foremost, it it goes back to your previous point in that at least the last year, if not just the January 6th attempted coup, shows that giant Pentagon budget is not keeping anyone in the country safe, Um, except for defense contractor CEOs um, and other profiteers off of human suffering. And so I think, you know, I just wanted to pull out really quickly that none of us should be surprised surprised that there were members of the military or former members of the military um, who took part in the coup attempt. Um, Because this giant Pentagon budget, it's not going to pay our service members a decent wage, give them phenomenal both physical and mental health care that they need nor does it provide them with suitable housing. In fact, it funds horrific housing conditions for members of our military. And so I think that there's this uh, dissonance between giant budgets at the Pentagon and this idea, right, that military dominance will always keep us safe. And in the face of the climate crisis, of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as just all the various ways that Trump has attacked democratic institutions here, as well as internationally, I think it's quite clear that we need a fundamental reset and rethinking of how not only we think about national security and what security really means, um, but also how we fund it. Um, And as Stephen mentioned, Uh, it's not that complicated. There have been tons of reports and research done on common sense ways to cut the Pentagon's budget by 200 billion to 300 billion per year over the next 10 years um, to fund not only a just transition that we need um, to actively mitigate and effectively mitigate the climate crisis, but also reinvest in institutions um, that support human needs and thinking about why do we not have healthcare in this country for everyone? Why do we not consider that a right? That is related to capitalism ultimately and the power of corporations. And so I think as we've seen kind of these tri crises, if you will, of um, racial injustice the climate crisis and the pandemic, more and more people um, are becoming aware that spending nearly a trillion dollars at the Pentagon every year has done little to keep regular people safe, 
And so we need a fundamental rethink of how we actually approach this question of security. So the, we keep uh, venturing into like really important concepts and, and I'm trying to, to, to drag us back down into the weeds of, of, uh, of rough practice. Uh, but, you know, two, two like practical uh, challenges that I was thinking of while listening to you. One is the local electoral concerns, which make uh, uh, elections, especially in districts that have big defense contractors, uh, often hinge on, you know, these sort of parochial uh, uh, defense contractor jobs. Um, and the second is those jobs themselves. Uh, so I imagine any any real meaningful shift in our uh, in a foreign policy that's often driven by arms sales, especially in the Gulf, would require somehow releasing um, releasing local elections uh, from having to be dominated by by the concerns of the contractors, and two, releasing the the well being of those districts from those from those particular jobs. And one example that leaps to mind is the is the very close vote we had over Yemen just a, a few weeks ago, uh, and where the two, two Democratic senators from Arizona uh, voted essentially with with Raytheon um, rather than with the party on on you know curtailing America's uh, complicity in Yemen, and that's one where the the decision it wasn't about morality; it was about it was about you know these kinds of rough interest calculations. Um, how uh, how does one, um, how does your organization envision sh- shifting that and say the way that like, uh, gun control activists have tried to, to chip away at the influence of the NRA over, over these sorts of, uh, uh levers? It's a, it's a great question. Uh, I mean, I'll start by saying that that was an unbelievably frustrating vote by Arizona's, uh, two democratic senators. And I think they, I think they'll need to answer to their constituents and to the to voters in, in Arizona about why they think it is appropriate for the United States to continue um, supporting war crimes in Yemen. I think the, the rest of the caucus chose a different tack for very good reason. But I think it gets to the point of, uh, of the answer to your question, which is it actually isn't particularly about parochial interests, right? Like th- these these weapons sales, these arms sales really weren't connected back to jobs in Arizona. They're connected back arguably to the perception of jobs in Arizona. But these particular programs had very little, if anything, to do. Um, they were about uh, things like drones that were made in other states and, and other kinds of other kinds of weapon systems. But there was a perception that like this was the right vote for, for them to take presumably in their mind. And I think there's a couple things that we need to understand and that we have to do as advocates. One is we have to force votes like this to show that the emperor has no clothes, right? That there are in fact not the repercussions people think they are because partly, or in in reality, because people tend to be on the side of the issue that we're on, that they tend to be against these sorts of programs. They tend to be against these sorts of things. I think of a classic example here. It's slightly uh, a a different issue, but connected uh, the JCPOA, the Iran deal, right? Back when we were fighting this in 20, in 2015, there was all of this consternation about how this would be a tough vote for Democrats, that Democrats would have a political liability. You know what? There was no member of Congress who lost their election over the JCPOA. It was a non-electoral factor. In fact, it only has been an electoral factor the other way for folks like Elliot Engel, who were on the wrong side of history, because Democratic voters were by and large on the right side of this issue. And so in that that, that conventional Washington information about what's going to matter to voters 
particularly on foreign policy, frankly, is totally divorced from the reality. I say this as a guy who used to run campaigns um, in my previous in my previous role. Most of the people who come up with these arguments about what matters have never knocked on a door in their lives, have never set foot on a campaign, right? So we have to we have to speak some truth. So speak some honesty about what really matters politically and be willing to engage in the hard knuckle political battles um, that, frankly, sometimes we don't want to because we think it's, it's you know, we should just be talking about the issue. These issues are resolved in a political arena. We have to be willing to make the political argument and win the political fight if we want to win on them. But the second part is there are jobs that are connected into this. There are good, high-paying manufacturing jobs in particular that are connected to some of these weapons programs. We need to grapple with that, but we need to understand two things that are really important. One is the Pentagon and these these arms manufacturing jobs in particular are one of the worst jobs programs that the, that the taxpayer supports. If taxpayers spend their money on almost anything else, including tax cuts, including education, including healthcare, we get more jobs. We get more jobs out of it. So we would get more jobs from a meta big picture perspective by investing in other things. But the second part is that doesn't really help the people whose jobs these are, right? We need to have transition. We need to have just transition that helps bring these manufacturing jobs into the 21st century, right? A lot of us are proponents of investing in uh, initiatives like the Green New Deal or other climate-based initiatives that help us tackle these existential threats like climate change. There are a lot of jobs to be had there, and there's money that needs to be invested to build those jobs. Well, we've got that money. We've got the highly skilled, highly trained workforce. What we're lacking is the willingness to, to make that make that choice, to make that conversion. I also just want to pull out something that Stephen was talking about um, that's related to the jobs argument is that a lot of these weapons sale deals now, particularly under Trump, include what are called co-production deals as part of these sales. And so what that means is that the jobs that are being created from some of these sales, most of these sales, are not even being created in the United States. They're being created in whoever is purchasing the weapon, so in Saudi Arabia or the UAE. And so there's there's a lot of mythologizing, I can't even say that word, um, there's a lot of myth created around this jobs argument um, when, you know, Jobs in education, for example, create 19.2 more jobs for every $1 million of defense spending than the 6.9 jobs in defense contracting that get created. And so I think it goes back to the point that Stephen was making in that this is, this, these myths exist because practitioners in Washington are not talking to the public. Instead, they're talking to the same corporate interests that their Republican colleagues are talking to, and they're being told one thing, that this will hurt your bottom line. They're using the tried and true fear politics of electoral um, reckoning that just has not happened, particularly because there is such a divide between where most you know, everyday Americans are in terms of how they want their government to be representing them in the world, to then the decisions that Washington people in Washington make. And so I think this this is where democratizing the U.S. foreign policy debate is so critical um, in breaking down these problems into things that, you know, matter to regular people at the end of the day, because it absolutely does affect it. But, you know, we've gotten very, very good at shrouding everything in secrecy. So it's very difficult for regular folks to engage and understand the impact and who it is and what decisions are actually driving those impacts. And we also have some really unhelpful language and concepts that have become enshrined as a result of the war on terror, uh, which is 
why one of my one of my big concerns after January sixth is that uh, I fear will repurpose the war on terror and the dehumanizing language of terrorism against our, our domestic threats. Um, and although there are some genuine terrorists among the coup plotters of January 6th, uh, what I don't want is to see, you know, indiscriminate surveillance, mass detention, rights stripping, uh, and the other pernicious tools of the war on terror uh, applied with even more force than they already are uh, against American citizens. What, what I want is a better shake for everybody, right? So it's demilitarization without isolationism, um, you know, just jobs uh, without doing it by demonizing the foreigners who are benefiting from our weapons programs, but rather by saying we don't want anybody's jobs to be created by, uh, you know, building bombs that are going to be dropped on Yemeni children. Uh, and I think that that is that's doable. It just requires some real uh, 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 message discipline and some imagination uh, along the, the lines of the way you two have been talking on this podcast and, and on your organization's uh, uh, podium about uh, how to how to essentially promote m- more humanity for more people rather than doing the right thing for for other you know other isolationist or um, you know uh, dehumanizing, uh, reason. So, so I, I take, I take heart from the way, the, the way I hear, I hear you, you two describing, uh, these problems. So in, in, in closing, cause I think we're, we're running up against the, uh, our, our, our podcast time limit. Um, do you, do, do either of you want to, um, to close with, with some, some sense of, what your concerns are about how this latest um, dark turn uh, in American politics might further worsen our foreign policy? Because we've been talking about how it comes home, and I and I do I don't want to neglect the question of how it it can go back out in even worse form. It's a scary thought. I think for me, one of the most concerning trends that I think we all have to guard against is the. I think there, you know particularly given the pandemic, there is a real uh, popular desire to a quote-unquote return to normal, to not have to face an existential crisis every day due to the actions of the White House. And while that may be relieving, and I'm certainly relieved, um, we have to fundamentally reckon with the reality that if we just try to return to normal, A, it's impossible because the world is not the same that it was four years ago. But B, normal was actively brutalizing and dehumanizing huge swaths of not only the American public, but people all around the world. Um, And I, I think that if we fail to understand that, we are failing to understand that Trump is a symptom of a larger disease that this country faces. And if we do not fundamentally reckon with how our policies and decisions have led to what happened on January 6th, um, that it is it has been, you know, an active decision by the US government to not tackle white supremacy and white nationalist violence in this country over the last two decades. Um, then we're only going to see an intensification of this. Um, and as someone who studies backsliding democracy, uh, I'm very concerned that our leaders have not signaled that they're ready to really have that conversation. 
Stephen. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe I'll I'll try to end on a on a positive note because we've had a, a bit of bit of doom and gloom here on the on today's show, which is well, that's not our show's reflect. fault. That's the world's fault. <laughs> I was gonna say is a, a reflection <laughs> of the times for sure, for sure. Um, I, I think I think the risk is exactly what Kate just said, and you know, if if these problems have been cycling back and forth between. Uh, you know, at home and abroad, there's no reason to think on its own that cycle is going to stop. But I think we we have a really powerful tool um, to to interrupt that process, and that's accountability. Um, you know, I think if we take one lesson away from from the war on terror, uh, it's that the lack of accountability is is a devastating mistake. Right? The the notion that we could simply turn the page on the worst of the Bush years and move forward um, was was a, was a, the wrong call. You know, we saw some of the worst perpetrators of of abuses find their home right back in the administration under Donald Trump and and proliferate out into other places. Some of them doing things abroad. I mean, look at Eric Prince's career, uh, gallivanting around the world as a mercenary and so on. So accountability becomes essential and we have a real chance for accountability, right? And accountability doesn't just look like convicting Donald Trump, not just impeaching him. It doesn't just look like holding accountable those in Congress who conspired with him and others for the insurrection that happened on January 6th. It also comes with restoring accountability back into our foreign policy, right? So it's questions about will Joe Biden follow through on his promises to bring accountability for the war crimes and the abuses done with American weapons, done with American support in places like Yemen to Saudi Arabia and the UAE? Will there be accountability for the uh, for places like Egypt who've done abuses? Will there be accountability for the excesses and the abuses we've seen in Israel and, and other places? There has to be accountability as a cornerstone and a, and, a, and a core part of the Biden foreign policy. But if we do that, if we start to have accountability, and it won't be perfect, it, it won't be it won't be easy, but if we begin to reinstall the notion of accountability, both at home and abroad, we can really interrupt this process, this cycle that we're seeing. We can be that shining city on a hill. We can be that beacon for the rest of the world as the as we collectively begin to stru- to uh, bring accountability around the world for these abuses that we're seeing. And we can start to build a better world. We can start to build a better tomorrow that we all want to have. But it really does have to start with that accountability. Well, let's plan on on chatting in 2023 uh, uh, I'm serious and, and do a little accountability <laughs> report card and see if, if any of that stuff has, has, has begun, uh, to be, to be accounted for. Sounds great. I've, I've been talking to Stephen Miles, the executive director of Win Without War and Kate Kaiser, the policy director at Win Without War. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and this is Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's foreign affairs podcast. Thanks for listening. And until next time. been listening to Order from Ashes, the international affairs podcast from the Century Foundation. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us to keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening. Till next time.